Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness. Sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. Some things just go together naturally. For example, a nice turn or ice wine is a fine companion to foie gras that is served with a fruit compote. Or if that's too rich for you, strawberry jam works good in a sandwich with peanut butter. Same kind of thing. And as even the most casual observer knows, rock music often comes with a side order of drugs. In case you haven't noticed, rock and drugs often have some kind of symbiotic relationship. I mean, the self-appointed moralists who want to sanitize life for the rest of us kind of have a point. The world of rock and roll is filled with stories of druggy excesses and the kind of misery only drugs can offer. A lot of lives have been ruined or ended by that dangerous combination of rock music and drugs. And more often than not, things can get really weird. And, and I'm, I mean really weird. I have ten stories where rock and drugs have intersected with very strange results. It's part five of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and we need to begin with a quick lesson in neuroscience. Everybody's brain includes these three parts, the amygdala, the cerebellum, and the nucleus accumbens. They're involved in the creation and regulation of a hormone called dopamine, and dopamine is the feel-good hormone. The amygdala, the cerebellum, and the nucleus accumbens analyze what's going on when we have an orgasm, or take cocaine, or listen to a great song. When these things are detected, dopamine is released into the bloodstream. This is a chemical message to the rest of the body that says, Hey, this is good. Let's have more. In other words, each of us comes hardwired with a part of the brain that deals with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And of course, they all seem to go together like peanut butter and jam. Now, the first item of our list of 10 weird things involving drugs is the U2 drug bust. And I know that U2 has this reputation of being all virtuous and righteous and above decadent behaviors associated with rock and roll. But it is true that there was a big drug bust. It's interesting how quickly things were swept away. It happened on August the 6th of 1989. Bassist Adam Clayton was in the parking lot of a pub in Glen Ellen, Ireland called The Blue Light when he was arrested for having 19 grams of pot on his person. It's not quite an ounce, but under Irish law, it was enough to charge him with intent to traffic. Now, this was bad, for all the obvious reasons, and because U2 was supposed to start yet another tour in less than six weeks. A criminal charge or conviction could mess up everything. I mean, have you ever tried to get a working visa when you've got a criminal record? Adam's trial was set for September the 1st of 1989, which was pretty speedy. Adam pled guilty. And instead of jail time, he was fined 25,000 pounds. That money was then donated to an organization called the Women's Aid Refugee Center. As a result of that, 
something called the Probation of Offenders Act came into effect, which meant that no conviction was ever recorded, and therefore there's no criminal record for Adam. A tour could begin on September 15th as scheduled. Weird how that all got settled in record time, isn't it? U2 featuring bass player Adam Clayton, the only member of the band to be officially busted for drugs. Well, the only one we know of anyway. Weird item number two has to do with the Happy Mondays and the time they consumed so many drugs that they drove their record label out of business. By the start of the 1990s, Factory Records was already under financial stress thanks to a miserable recession, falling property values, and high interest rates. The value of the label's assets fell from 3.5 million pounds to just 900,000 pounds. And the label had borrowed 2.5 million to finance everything else. So um, a big oops there. Meanwhile, the expense of all their expenses kept rising and rising. It's pretty dire. The only thing that might make it all go away was another hit album from one of Factory's biggest stars. And this is where we get to the Happy Mondays. Now, the Mondays had always been drugged out freaks. So the decision was made to send them someplace where there was no heroin with no smack temptations. Maybe they can get the job done, record a hit album, and everything would be fine. So the decision was made to send the Happy Mondays to Barbados. There was no heroin in Barbados. But there was lots and lots and lots of crack. Who knew? Not only did the band spend hours smoking rocks, they managed to destroy two rental cars, and Bez, the band's druggy dancer, broke his arm so bad in one of the crashes that doctors thought at one point they might have to amputate it. It was broken in five places. When the money ran out, the Monday started selling their clothes to island drug dealers. And when they ran out of clothes, they stole a couple of couches from the recording studio and traded them for crack. When Factory finally got the band back to Manchester, they found that while the Mondays had written some music and recorded some songs, the songs didn't have any lyrics, no vocals. Now, by this time, money was so tight that Factory had no choice but to sell some assets to the bigger and much more financially solid London records. The price, £4 million, would solve everything. But then London looked at the contracts, the contracts that supposedly bound all the factory artists to the factory label. And they found out that there was no legal bond at all. There were no contracts. There were no signatures. The entire deal fell through. So factory was done. And although there were other financial problems, we can blame the crack smoke and happy Mondays for bringing it all down. Now here's a track from the album that did it. The album was called Yes Please. And here's a sample of a song called Stinkin' Thinkin'. Happy Mondays with Stinkin' Thinkin' from the 1992 Yes Please album, the record that basically ruined Factory Records, one of the great British indie labels of all time. Weird drug item number three involves Perry Farrell, he of Jane's Addiction, Porno for Pyros, Satellite Party, and Lollapalooza. Like Paris and like Brittany and Pam and Tommy and Pam and Brett, Perry had trouble with a sex tape. In the spring of 1998, a 60-minute tape of Perry and a female friend leaked out. 
It was then offered for sale to the general public by a website called Spy7.com. Then another company called the Internet Entertainment Group, the same company that got hold of the infamous Pam Anderson Tommy Lee sex tape, was going to get involved. It allegedly showed some nasty goings-on in the back of a limousine, including some real-life drug injections and weird babblings about Satan. Here's the quote. Perry was indulging in overt sex acts and drug use while engaging in a bizarre love pact with his lover. There were allegedly syringes and injections and all kinds of other things. It was apparently incriminating stuff, and anyone would be able to see it for the low, low price of $19. Remember, too, that this was back in the super wild west days of the Internet. No one was really sure what laws applied to whom. IEG, the Internet Entertainment Group, was one of the few money-making ventures on the net at the time. They maintained that they had a signed release and they were going to post the whole thing on their website. But Perry would have none of that. To keep the whole thing secret, Perry launched a $90 million lawsuit. On May 27, 1998, he got an injunction to prevent the tape's release while the lawsuit continued. In the end, it all went wrong for the head of IEG, a dude named Seth Warshavsky. When a judge ruled against him in another sex tape issue, one worth about $1.4 million, the guy skipped out to Thailand. Meanwhile, Perry is most ashamed about this tape. Here's a quote from him. This tape is a shame to me, he says. If there's anything in this world I wouldn't want you to see, it's that tape. I'm not kidding you. But you're going to see the tape. I have to figure out how I'm going to live the rest of my life feeling so ashamed and embarrassed about this tape. It wasn't even the drugs, although I don't do the drugs anymore. It's more the stupidity of my words. They're stupid. I'm speaking as an idiot. I say, Coke is the devil, and I can play the devil. I felt the devil was inside of me, and I came to find out that the devil's in everybody. I could look at it like it's a curse, which it is, so I'm going to turn it into a blessing. It's funny how it works. Just when you crush the serpent's head with your heel, he bites you in the heel. So the good news is, I think I've crushed the serpent. Words from Perry Farrell, reformed sex and drugs videotape star. Weird drug item number four has to do with the time when Peter Buck, the guitarist with R.E.M., went nuts in the first-class section of a British Airways flight from Seattle to London. And I really mean went nuts. It was April the 21st of 2001. R.E.M. was scheduled to play a concert for Nelson Mandela at Trafalgar Square. And Peter, who is not the biggest fan of flying, popped a sleeping pill, a prescription drug called Ambien, and washed it all down with a big glass of red wine. Actually, Peter had a lot of red wine. He had some at the gate, and he reportedly had 15, that's one five, top-ups while in his seat in the first-class section. He says he started to feel a little woozy, and then nothing until he woke up in a police cell at Heathrow Airport. He thought he was having a heart attack, couldn't understand why he was in this weird hospital in Disneyland or whatever. The man was confused, but not as confused when he heard the charges that were being laid against him. Peter's actions on British Airways Flight 48 consisted of the following. None of this is disputed, by the way. Peter attempted to insert a CD into a food trolley, thinking that it was actually a very large mobile CD player. When it wouldn't play his CD, he flipped it over, spilling its contents all over the first-class cabin. When he was formally warned and given a card stating that if he didn't behave himself, he would be arrested... Well, he just ripped that up in front of the flight attendant. 
He grabbed a cutlery knife and wouldn't give it back to the flight attendants. He smeared yogurt on himself and over the cabin, and he attacked various members of the flight crew. He was so belligerent that the flight was almost diverted in the interest of safety. The dude is lucky that this happened to him in the spring of 2001 and not after 9-11. God knows what might have happened to him then. Anyway, Peter was granted bail in order to return to London to appear in court on various charges of being drunk on a plane. There were two charges of common assault and one of damaging British Airways property. His first trial collapsed under strained circumstances, but at the second trial, which lasted three weeks and featured people like Bono of U2 testifying as character witnesses, Peter was acquitted, mainly because the jury believed the doctor's testimony of what happened. The combination of the drug, Ambien, and red wine resulted in something known as non-insane automatism. This is a legal term that describes certain types of non-voluntary behavior, and in Peter's case, it was caused by an unusual reaction between the Ambien and the alcohol. In other words, Peter was excused for his actions because of this strange and weird combination of prescription drugs and alcohol. The case was dismissed April 5th, 2002. Here's the best part. Peter flew home to Seattle on British Airways. Peter Buck's bad encounter with a sleeping pill. Weird drug story number four. When we come back, we'll look at how Oasis screwed up an album mix with too much cocaine. And when David Bowie was convinced he was being monitored by aliens. It's part five of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. The biggest British album of the 1990s was What's the Story Morning Glory from Oasis. It sold more than 10 million copies around the world. And naturally, there was lots of pressure on Noel Gallagher to write and record a follow-up that was as strong or stronger. And he tried. But the boatloads of cocaine that he shut up his nose got the best of him, or more superficially, his ears. Now, if you have ever listened to Be Here Now and thought, wow, this record is loud and harsh, and what's with the zillion guitar tracks and overdubs? What was Noel thinking? Well, Noel became obsessed with making the record more complex, but the only way he knew how to do that was by adding layers and layers and layers of guitars. Part of it was cocaine-inspired megalomania. And part of it, according to Noel, was that coke deadens the ear's abilities to hear high frequencies and to separate sounds. So he just kept adding guitars until the noise pummeled past the coke that gummed up his hearing. Noel didn't actually hear what Be Here Now sounded like until he had laid off the blow and let his ears recover. And since then, Noel Gallagher has pretty much disowned Be Here Now. Here's a quote. It's the sound of five men in a studio on coke not given a F. There's no bass to it at all. Don't know where all that went. Songs are too long and the lyrics are crap. And for every millisecond Liam is not singing, there's a guitar riff in there in a Wayne's World style. So here's the sample so you can see what Noel means. That's probably enough. You you get what I mean. David Bowie is a distinguished, respected rock and roll deity. But back in the 1970s, he was um, kind of messed up. 
Okay, get a lot messed up, especially when he relocated to Los Angeles. When he was in L.A., Bowie existed basically on a diet of milk, red peppers, and cocaine. As you might guess, he lost an alarming amount of weight. Some witnesses put him at something less than 100 pounds at his worst. While his body wasted away, so did his mind. He loaded his house with Egyptian artifacts, which he thought might protect him from the mysterious alien overlords, which were apparently monitoring his every move from their invisible orbiting spacecraft. Now, now why would they be doing that? Well, they were planning to kidnap him, of course. On tour, he traveled with a telescope so he could sweep the skies from hotel rooftops. His poor assistant was kept busy buying books on UFOs. He was also afraid that witches were planning to steal his semen. He wasn't sure how, but they were out for his junk. He kept his urine and fingernail clippings in the fridge because, well, apparently witches can use those things to cast spells too. And then there were the secret satanic messages that he was receiving. Some were coming from the Rolling Stones, but more disturbing were the ones he was getting from himself. Bowie had a special turntable made that played records backwards. He'd listen to his own albums backwards, listening for messages that he was sending to himself from the future or something. Oh, and did I mention the time he tried to run down a cocaine dealer in a parking garage? Bowie thought he was being ripped off, so he tried to teach the dealer a lesson. David Bowie's L.A. Drug Haze of 1976, the same year he recorded the Station to Station album. It was a platinum seller, but if you ask Bowie, he does not remember recording this album at all. David Bowie with a song he doesn't remember writing or recording or releasing or performing. You can blame it all on the cocaine. Weird drug moment number six. Weird drug moment number seven involves Bowie's drug buddy Iggy Pop. In the early 1970s, he signed a record deal that gave him an advance of $100,000, which back then was a huge amount of money. Iggy then checked himself into a suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel and loaded himself up with so much cocaine and heroin and speed and weed and angel dust that he literally went insane. One day, the police found a homeless Iggy cowering under the counter at a burger joint, and he was given a choice, jail or a mental institution. He chose to spend time in the Neuropsychiatric Institute in Los Angeles, and during his stay, his only visitor was David Bowie. Now, just imagine this. Iggy's insane in a mental institute. The most stable person coming to visit him was the guy that was eating nothing but milk, red peppers, and cocaine. How messed up is that? Iggy's unbelievably bad drug freakout in Los Angeles. Weird drug moment number seven. Iggy Pop and the Stooges from 1973, back when Iggy was so drugged up that he was certifiably insane. Honestly, certifiably insane. It's weird drug moment number seven. In a second, we'll finish things up with a story of a dead hermit, a guy who lost all his teeth, and the bass player whose pancreas exploded. It's all pretty gross stuff, but we're going to do it all next. We're into the home stretch of our list of 10 weird drug stories. Now, can you imagine drinking so much that one of your internal organs literally explodes? This is what happened to Duff McKagan, 
13 years in Guns N' Roses will do this to you. In 1994, after way too much drinking and cocaine, Duff's pancreas exploded. It it blew up. It swelled up until it couldn't hold itself together anymore, and it just blew up inside his body. Now, this is not good because the enzymes contained in your pancreas act like acid. The corrosive goop in Duff's pancreas spilled out over his stomach and seeped through his intestines and eventually reached the muscles in his thighs. You can think of it as an internal acid spill. It burned and ate away at other internal organs and muscles. Now, when this happens to most people, they die. But in Duff's case, though, he was able to get to a doctor in time. He was slit open, and out came steam and smoke and acidic residue, not to mention the smell of disintegrating organs. Doctors found third-degree burns inside his abdomen. By the way, Duff doesn't drink anymore. He can't. He could literally die from just one shot of JD. Item number nine has to do with the teeth of Chili Peppers guitarist John Frusciante. After joining the Peppers, he got very, very deep into heroin. He blamed Flea. When John found out that Flea got stoned for every gig, he took that as a sign that he should become a pothead. But then came the heroin. In the middle of a tour of Japan in 1992, he quit the band and flew back to L.A., where he spent the middle part of the 90s in an unbelievable junkie state. He was depressed. He wouldn't eat. And he felt that he couldn't write music or even play the guitar anymore. All he could seem to do was paint and self-medicate with junk, which seemed to work. Which was the problem. The only time he was happy was when he was high. The more depressed he was when he was straight, the more heroin he had to shoot up to take the edge off. Now, John did write some music, but it wasn't exactly the kind of stuff that anyone wanted to hear. And as the 90s progressed, John, who's a small guy to begin with, got more and more skeletal. One interviewer described him as a skeleton covered in thin skin. His arms were covered with scars and track marks. And because he wasn't exactly careful with his drug paraphernalia, he ended up with skin abscesses and nearly died of a blood infection. There were worries about gangrene and amputation. There were burn marks all over his body from accidents during freebasing. He'd even shoot up during interviews. And eventually his skin began to slough off. And all his teeth rotted out. It got to the point that Johnny Depp, yes, Captain Jack Sparrow, made a documentary entitled Stuff on how far John had fallen. It's never been released, but apparently has a very clear view of the kind of squalor in which John was living. That house in the Hollywood Hills eventually burned down, taking John's collection of vintage guitars with it. Well, the guitars that were left, he had pawned a bunch to buy drugs. But then, by 1997, the Chili Peppers needed to find a new guitarist, or they were going to break up. Everyone agreed that the guitarist had to be John, or was going to be no one. So, in January of 1998, John was checked into a treatment facility. Anthony Kiedis bought him a new guitar as a peace gesture. And by April, he was well enough to start rehearsing with the band. Now, John has been clean since that time, since 1998. He exercises every day, he eats well... And he had pretty much all his rotted teeth pulled out. They had been reduced to just smelly, crumbly, discolored stumps, which were all loaded with infection. 
He had them replaced with fake ones at a cost of more than $70,000. He also had numerous skin grafts to replace the scars caused by the abscesses on his arms. Today, John lives in a nice, quiet place in the Hollywood Hills. All he'll eat is unprocessed food. doesn't even smoke anymore, and he stays away from most sexual activity. And he practices a type of Buddhist meditation called Vipassana. He's free to immerse himself in music as a clean person. The first album to feature John's return was Californication in 1999. And now you kind of know why the album includes a song called Scar Tissue. With the The Chili Peppers featuring a healthier, less rotten John Fusciante. Dude's got a killer smile, too. If you thought that was gross, here's weird drug story number 10. It has to do with Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, and this is a gross and very, very, very sad story. Lane was a junkie, too. By the time he gave his last performance with Alice in Chains on July the 3rd of 1996, he was nothing more than an emaciated shell. After that, he withdrew from everyone and everything. He lived a hermit-like existence for years in a condo on the 4500 block of 8th Avenue Northeast in the University District of Seattle. His teeth rotted out. His liver stopped working. He threw up all the time. He even lost control of his bowels. At one point, he wasn't even shooting up to get high. He just wanted to fight off the pain of being dope-sick. His weight dropped to about 80 pounds. No one would hear from the guy for weeks. His drugs would be delivered to the door. The only place he was seen was at a neighborhood bar called the Rainbow on Northeast 45th Street. He'd stop in and nod off in the corner. He wouldn't order or drink anything. He'd just sit by himself with his eyes closed. No one ever bothered him. On Friday, April the 19th, there was an anonymous 911 call from a woman who was concerned because she hadn't seen or heard from Lane in almost three weeks. The cops contacted his mother and stepfather who went to the condo. At 5.41 p.m., cops kicked in the door. They found Lane's body on the couch, surrounded by all his drug gear, including some syringes and a couple of crack pipes. The coroner from the King County Medical Office showed up around 7.30 to help identify the body. I know that sounds a little weird, but Lane was in such a state that he wasn't recognizable. It took about 24 hours to make a positive ID. The coroner figured that Lane had been lying dead on the couch for at least two weeks. In fact, he placed the time of death as April 5th, the same date on which Kurt Cobain had killed himself. An autopsy determined that the cause of death was an overdose from a speedball, a mixture of coke and heroin. Alice in Chains, featuring doom singer Lane Staley. So there's 10 weird drug stories from the world of alt-rock. Now, of course, there were many, many more, but these ones seem to have struck a chord with a lot of people, especially the tale of Lane Staley. I probably get more email on that than any other tragic death, except maybe Kurt Cobain. On part six of 100 Weird Things About New Rock, we're going to lighten things up considerably as we go into the recording studio. The process of writing and recording a song can be very strange. Sometimes inspiration can come in the form of, oh, chicken poop. Yes, chicken poop. Just hold that thought for now. Trust me on it, okay? Join me next time for part six of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. We're going inside the recording studio. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.